Episode 12 of the Hard Yards Rugby League podcast and we're dedicated to those who do the hard yards in the game of rugby league. I'm your host Lee Addison and this is a podcast for you wherever you are in the rugby league world. We are your advocate, your supporter, your voice and we'll always tell it as we see it and where appropriate pull no punches. Trying not to ramble on too much today before we get into the show. A show open, uh, a short opening comments, followed by an uh, interview with Nate Gladden from the Rugby League in America podcast and everyone's favourite, Phil Kaplan, our UK correspondent. Listen, guys, um, we are rugbyleaguecoach.com.au, your elite rugby league coach online, and the Hard Yard Rugby League podcast is a spin-off from that. Please have a look at our website when you can, particularly if you're a coach, a player, an administrator or a strength and conditioning coach. It's your online teaching tool for rugby league, like your 21st century textbook. If you want to get in touch with us, admin at rugbyleaguecoach.com.au is our email. Twitter at rlcoach on the net and Instagram and Facebook at rugby league coach. So let's start with our opening comments straight into it. It's going to be a shorter opening comments today because the interviews are quite significantly longer, already over an hour and a, as before I record these opening comments. A couple of things I want to talk about. Um, number one is the news from the UK that an English football league club has effectively folded or been kicked out of the competition. They were 134 years old and the ramifications or possible ramifications for rugby league. And the second thing I want to talk about is the situation in Argentina. Okay, firstly, Berry FC. Um, for those not versed in football or soccer, Berry FC are a club that are 130 odd years old, I think 134. Um, they've won the FA Cup twice, which is quite a big competition in, in English soccer. At one time, it was the biggest. Um, and they are basically extinct as of Tuesday um, uh, this week when this podcast comes out. Um, there was also another club in trouble, in financial trouble, Bolton, just down the road. Both of them clubs live near Manchester City and Manchester United. Manchester United, one of the biggest brand names in world sport. Manchester City, the last decade, becoming one of the biggest clubs because of their um, Abu Dhabi expenditure and investment. Um, what does that mean for Rugby League? Well, basically, uh, a club that's 134 years old is probably still working on some 19th and 20th century models. And um, wh- One of the things is that an English Football League has 92 league clubs, uh, if you include the Premier League teams, but that's now, now gone down. Um, a lot of the Rugby League clubs are run the same way in England too, and there's a, there's a lot of Super League clubs, trust me, who are in financial difficulty. I won't say the word peril, but... You know, some of them are being saved by investment, um, but some of the lower league clubs, uh, your Keithleys, your Bradfords, and the like, they have been in in significant trouble. And there's been uh, a multitude of others witness nearly folded recently. Um, the game has to reinvent itself over in England. No two ways about that. But even in Australia, we're talking about relocation and um, too many Sydney teams and all this because obviously. In the twentieth century, when when these clubs were being formed, they they formed within short distance of each other. Now we're talking about a national rugby league, 
and we're also including teams from New Zealand and Canberra and, and Melbourne and places that aren't uh, attached to, to Sydney and also Brisbane, North Queensland and the Gold Coast up north. So basically any of these clubs that were were born in the 19th or century, uh, 20th century are, are, are coming under real scrutiny. Um, so what does 21st century sport look like? Well, um, I think... It has a lot to do with we need to get away from the fact that people might want to do certain things um, like go to a game, buy a hot dog, buy a beer or whatever, and, and that's all they want. We've got to look at the match day experiences. Um, we've got to look at how we can bring technology into it, how apps and things like that can be used at games. Um, we've got to look at how it's televised or streamed. This is in all competitions. We've got to look at how we have teams. Do we have them based on areas or do we need franchises? Do we need a big bash type situation or an IPL type situation or a situation like the darts or Wimbledon where we have something that just lasts a couple of weeks but all eyes are on it. I've been on this podcast before and said that we should have a four week gap in the middle of the year to really promote Origin and a nine circuit and the international scene. So go back a few podcasts to listen to that. All I know is that all these things are pointing to the fact that we need to act. The other thing that is really affecting rugby league is the salary cap. Um, Gus Gould was in the news this week saying that he's never known so many teams in poor form. Well, one of the reasons so many teams will be in poor form is because there's not the high highest calibre players because a lot of the um, kids of 10 years ago who uh, were thinking about a career in sport might have thought twice about rugby league because they knew it was a salary cap sport and was probably still likely to be that in 10 years' time. Plus, everything that I'm talking about, the 20th century, twentieth and 19th century thought, applies to our, our local clubs and our community clubs. And, you know, volunteers are changing how they do things. There's more litigation around things now. We really need to really analyse where our sport is in the 21st century and what we want it to look like in the 21st century because so much of what we do is stuck in the 19th and 20th and if we're not careful a lot of our clubs are going to go the same way as your berries and your boltons who've just managed to survive now one of the things that makes me think the salary cap is a problem one of the things that's keeping english soccer uh on the back pages of the newspapers and also booming at the top end is that big investors around the world can get involved um, why would an Abu Dhabi Sheikh billionaire get involved with a rugby league when he can only spend a certain amount on the salary cap along with everyone else? Why would he try and attract um, a player of the calibre of Sonny Bill Williams, for example, at his peak, or um, some of the others that have switched over to rugby union when they should have maybe stayed in league? Your Israel's Falaus, for example, um, before he sort of uh, got himself in a bit of trouble, but... Why Why would a billionaire really want to get involved with rugby league from outside its normal circle when there's only so much they can spend and they can, in theory, spend the same amount as somebody who's got far less money than they have? See, what's happened in England with the Premier League is, um, you know, early 2000s, Roman Abramovich, the Russian oligarch, was the, the, the big man on campus spending all the money. And then gradually, over time... Other people have come in and spent more money than him and made him look like a, a relatively small player. 
I'm not saying that's the answer. I'm not saying that we need to go that way um, and become a war about money, but the salary cap is really restrictive to that kind of growth. We need to analyse where we are at and where we want to be in the 21st century. That's all I'll say for now. Second issue is Argentina. Um, and again, I'm only rushing through these because of the of the quality interviews we've got. Uh, but Argentina, you may have heard, there's basically two entities, right? And they were working independently of each other, trying to get rugby league going. And literally, they didn't know each other until about a week before I got there, and they met for the first time. Um, one of the entities, which is the guys that I work with, Carlos Varela and his committee, Bocho, Jorge, uh, Sebastian, Alejandro, and and others, um, have made a decision um, to forego RLIF. Uh, international federation that is um, uh, validation uh, to to be an associate member um, I forget the term um, rather than observer member and they've decided to go with an organisation called World Rugby League um, and if you were to read the social media posts from the old keyboard warriors that are very brave behind a, com- a computer uh, World Rugby League are run by the guy who messed up things in Greece um, the guy who is rugby union scum, the guy who wants to run rugby league into the ground, this, that and the other. Um, all I will say is this. Number one, I know Carlos and I know his committee very well. They're very smart people, successful people, successful people, successful people in their own right. Um, and they have felt compelled to take this step. I'm not saying I agree with that step, but they've felt compelled and there is a reason for it. It's up to them to decide if they say why on a more public scale. But they've made that decision to go with the rebel organisation World Rugby League. Um, so it is what it is and we and we just try and go forward uh, in the short term without, without arguing with too many people. I must say the other entity, Pablo Aguilera and uh, Richard Acuna and people like that are great friends of mine too. So I'm sort of stuck in the middle here. Uh, and I see the positives of them coming together, but it's not been able to happen. Um, th- there's a reason Carlos and his group have split. They're angry about certain things and feel they've, feel they've not been given the right uh, opportunities. Um, also, there's a reason that the World Rugby League was formed. They obviously felt that they weren't being given the opportunity to be heard or whatever else. Um, I have spoken to... Tazos involved with World Rugby League and all I can say is on face value what he's telling me he's got the best interest of the game at heart so I'm not judging him either way there's a lot of hysteria on social media I'm asking all listeners to um, not take anything with a pinch of salt but just be balanced in their opinions and everything that they're reading here there is a problem around the world game with splits in certain nations and I think People need to look at why this is happening. Why was World Rugby League formed in the first place? Is somebody got that much of a vendetta, do you think, that they just really want to tear Rugby League down because of, of something? Or do you think they've got genuine frustrations? And I've actually taken the time to speak to World Rugby League and Tazos and listen to why they are frustrated, and it's very genuine. I think what needs to happen is we need to understand that the people who are trying to start Rugby League all around the world are volunteers, they're coming home late from work at night and checking emails. They are not big 
institutions like Red Hall or NRL Central or anything like that. They are volunteers, and there's only so much of the volunteer well you can you can dip into, and they need help, not barriers. We need to reach out to help them. We need compassion. We need to support them. Uh, we need to make effort to understand their language, um, talk to them in their language, and the international game needs to go out and visit more and things like that. All I can say is that there's two sides to every story. I've seen the Rugby League International Federation story, and I've seen the uh, the other side of the people who are uh, sort of arguing with them, if you like. There's no bad people involved in this from my point of view. There's just very passionate people, and we've got to be happy that passions are high for rugby league i think 100 years ago 50 years ago this wasn't happening these passions weren't so high in all these different countries in the world so what i suggest is just take everything as you find it around the world the slower we go the faster we get there but the game has to look at why this is happening why is there a world rugby league being formed why is there um, an entity from Argentina jumped on board with them. Why are other people jumping on board with this? Why is there so many splits? And it's because um, we've all got to pull together uh, and not try and fight each other and, 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 uh, and let's try and develop this game. Time for Nate Gladding, uh, Rugby League in America podcast. Sorry, I'm just eating a bit of chicken while I talk. You just told me it's 4.45 where you are, mate, in the AM, so I hope you're not drinking whiskey. <laughs> no, I'm uh I as far as I know, unless the uh the fairy snuck in the whiskey fairy snuck in in the middle of the night and put whiskey in my uh, coffee mug, that is uh that is coffee in my uh, that, <laughs> that I'm consuming at the moment. <laughs> now just a slight digression. Um the coffee in America when I went there for the few times I've been and had coffee in America, it has been hideous. So don't even talk to me about coffee in America unless there's been some kind of vast improvement in the last few years. Well, so I, it's funny because my girlfriend, obviously, being Australian, she said the same thing. I was like, well, there's yeah. a reason for that. So it's because we give coffee like constantly. Like when I came to Australia, every time you get a glass, of, a cup of coffee, you got to pay for it. So yeah. it's mainstream coffee. It's like pump in, pump out kind of coffee. If yeah. you go to an actual cafe, pretty good. So we've got a place right next to us, and they do all kinds of coffee you can imagine. And she loves it. And then the coffee I make here, if I'm completely honest, she says it's pretty dang good. So, <laughs> but I've spent I've spent She's years biased, trying to perfect that. Well, uh, we'll pretend like I'm just really good at it, but it's probably <laughs> that she's biased. Make glad in the barista. Um, <laughs> um, you said. Uh, when we weren't recording before, you could tell in my voice that I'm not yeah. trying, uh, too great. Because as we record this, we're sort of within 24 hours of the news breaking that um, one of the two entities that has been trying to develop rugby league in Argentina has basically, um, I'm trying to find the right words here, turned its back on trying to get RLIS, RLIS membership and has gone with the World Rugby League uh, organisation. Um, I'm mentioning that in my opening comments, so everybody's heard what I've sort of thought about it. As a fan, Nate, you know, rather than the the, the presenter of the and owner of the uh, Rugby League in America podcast that you are, as a fan, how are you feeling about this news? I'm... Uh... 
feeling two things. One, um, I think probably like everybody else, confused. Um, I mm. think that's just probably a given, and, and I, I can expand on that here in just a second. The other thing is, the other thing is curious. Both things are pretty similar, but one, you know, I'm, I'm confused as to the why because I didn't see this coming with Carlos and all of them as a fan. Um, I, I'm confused because I don't see how this benefits them going forward, trying to get in the qualifications, obviously with us in the Americas and things like that. Mm. Uh, I, I thought they were on the cusp of, of, of getting there. I, th- I think they probably offer a pretty dangerous alternative to Chile and Brazil, mm. you know, when they all come up mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. each other. Um, so that was the uh, confused part of it. The curious part to me, I guess the the two things that would be curious is one, does this drag on like it has in Greece? And two, how did the WRL manage to pull this one off in a much different setting than, uh, or well, in distance wise, uh, geographically speaking from like say Greece. I'm just, what do you know about the Greece situation? And what do you know about the, WRL, if anything. Yeah, well, from the Greece situation, you know, I've talked to Stuart and uh, McLennan and, and a couple of them over there, and it, it comes a lot of it comes down to the simple fact of, it, it, as far as how I interpret and see it, is you know, it's a, another organization that's come up, and and honestly, the, the one group wasn't happy with the yeah. other one. They wanted more power, they wanted more decision making and everything else, and they've decided to kind of go in this whole, like, hey, we'll go this route, and we'll just not recognize the RLIF, and we'll start playing. Mm. Um, that What I know about the WRL is, the honest answer is, and, and, I, and I don't know anybody in the WRL. I know, I, or I, maybe I do, and I don't know it, but mm. I'm not mm-hmm. familiar with any of them that I'm aware of. So I'll say this, they, I don't think they've done anything beyond just kind of break a couple people apart at the lowest levels all inside of the emerging nations and that's the only thing i know of of them i'd actually love to sit down at a table and find out what they're all about but i don't know who these people are i mean i think i think everybody deserves an audience you know i I completely agree um one thing i've been upset about in the last 24 hours is the amount of people that have been very quick to stick the knife into uh, the people. Not not the WRL, but the people involved. Now, I'm pretty convinced that in our democracy, and I know we're talking different countries, yep, here, but yep, yep. you know, most Western societies tend to operate with the old innocent before proven guilty. Um, there have been some hideous things said about the people involved on a certain side of the fence in Greece. Um, and you know, there's almost like a, a it's almost like a Star Wars. It's like they're saying there's a dark side and the light side, you know, like it's right. Um, I think the game has got to somehow look at why this is happening in so many different countries. So I can think of a few countries where there is split. You are in one where there was a split. Yeah. Um, Yeah. What are the reasons for that? So 
if somebody keeps getting illness, if somebody keeps having an illness in their body, there's a there's a there's a there's a reason to think that you might have to start looking at the causes, not just the symptoms and trying to repair <laughs> the symptoms. Yeah. Um. What's going on in the world, Nate, of rugby league? Is it just ego? Is it just um, rugby league? <laughs> I think it, I think ego plays a big part, and I think you know it's the it's a it's an, a very old quote, and I think and I feel terrible if I'm wrong on this because I I love history, I'm a nerd, but I believe it's former president Harry Truman said, you know, it's amazing what you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. Yeah, and I think it's you know or something like that. Obviously, he said it a lot more elegant than I would have, but uh, but uh, or eloquently or whatever you want to say, but um. But but that said, like I, I do think there's always going to be a massive money, and I think human beings in general they have an ego, even if they try to yeah. put it aside properly. Yeah. When you have sit down at a at a table, I yeah. do believe that every human has a, an ego to a certain point, um, and, and that's that's just human nature. Uh, it's yeah. moving past that in the moment that you have to work on. Um, but I think a lot of it does come down to that. Um, I do believe so. What I will say in I don't want to say in favor of either side, but what I, when when these kind of things happen, if they happen, it's because like you said, the cause. Uh, they start looking at it, but if these things happen, it's because something has allowed them to happen. So yes. in order for that, like somebody has to feel like they're not being heard. Now yeah. it doesn't mean necessarily that that person, like uh, you know, like it, it, whether it be somebody in Greece, whether it be somebody in Argentina, whether it be somewhere, somebody anywhere in any other country, uh, whether it was here in the United States, if somebody feels like they're not being heard, well, they they need to try to work on that. Now that doesn't mean that you have to rebel and, and fracture. So I don't yeah. know, and I'm not necessarily saying that they are in this case, because I, because for all I know, and this is as a fan, for all I know. This is kind of a, hey, I'm going to raise my, I'm going to kind of like do this and poke this and it's going to cause a reaction. And then you're going to turn around and pay attention to me. And then I finally got it. And sometimes yeah. that works. Like to be perfectly honest, sometimes that needs to happen. The establishment, the RLIF, the establishment, the big countries, Australia, New Zealand, England, you know, countries like that, that are, that are at that higher level as far as, you know, people paying attention to them. Um, what it really comes down to is, they don't really have to listen to Greece. They don't really have to pay attention to Argentina because those are the young, young guns coming up. So until they're, they matter, they don't matter. Uh, yeah. I think Tonga is a perfect example of that. Tonga could was, – everybody was losing their mind to see Tonga play somebody. Well, eventually Tonga just stepped up on the field and scared the hell out of England Yeah, popped New Zealand, and they started bringing in, in players that actually wanted to like – you know, provide for their heritage. Then yeah. they, you know, they went up against Australia. So they, they forced themselves into the conversation and this is the exact same thing. It's forcing yeah. yourself into the conversation. Yeah. I, you said, you're very smart, Nate. I mean, you said there that about people feeling that they're not heard. I do know because I was there recently that Carlos and his committee um, felt that, at times, they were fighting a losing battle with the RLIF because they felt that the other entity was getting favourable treatment, right? Yeah. That's not Lee Addison saying that. That's Lee Addison saying what he uh, believed they felt, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that what you said there about not being heard is, is spot on. Um, where I sit on this... 
is that I've seen the potential in Argentina with my own mince pies. I've got friends on both sides, but obviously I was brought over to Argentina by Carlos's group. And I will say this, that Carlos's group, his committee, are full of very successful and very intelligent and very um, reliable people. So I have to go on record here and say that being in Argentina for me was one of the few times where I got a lot more in terms of um, outcomes or the way I was treated. I got a lot more than I I was told I was going to get and expected to get. Mm. And that is such a rarity in this sport of ours. Yes. Such a rarity. And around the world. And it's a bloody tragedy that we're at this stage. Um, what what are you aware of? Were you around? Were you in your rugby league headspace when something similar happened in England, uh, in America? Sorry, when there was a schism in America, are you aware of of that? I'm, I'm very give my listeners a bit of a historical lesson here. Yeah, I'm very aware of what happened. I wasn't involved in it at all. Yeah, so that yeah. uh, so so I will say that let me let me touch on Argentina because it'll lead into America. So because you you said something about Carlos and them being very uh, you know very intelligent, a lot of reliable individuals inside of that, and very yeah. capable, you know, and and I think that's important. I've had conversations with Carlos. I will say that they were uh, back and forth in Spanish, so I may have lost some things in translation. <laughs> um, you know, I I felt pretty good about it, but I may you know I may have, but yeah. from a standpoint of like he seemed he comes off like an incredibly nice human being. He just Correct. he comes off as a very intelligent and a very nice human being. So I will yeah. say that on his part, and that leads into kind of, you know, that Argentina piece, the WRL, because uh, I do want to talk about, I want to ask you a question about the WRL in, in, in the future, but or soon, but into America is, <clears throat> is you can have both sides talking to both sides now of the equation. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll leave names out because I will say this, I get on a regular, like on a daily basis, I get... I easily get a dozen messages about people asking me to talk about why the other side, both sides will contact me and talk about why the other side ruined rugby league in America. Okay. And I tell them every time I refuse to do that. I will not take one side. I wasn't a part of it. I don't have a reason to take a side. I've seen, I've now talked to both sides uh, and a lot of it. And I mean this and for any of them that hear this, they know we've had conversations I think a lot of this comes down to two things. One, there is ego in it. And two, there's a lot of love for the game. And because yes. there's a lot of love for the game from both sides, they feel slighted. It's like they were in a relationship that they felt ended and they didn't have a decision. Correct. On. And there's I a fine think that's, line between love and hate. There is a very fine line between love and hate. And uh, that's just one of those things. And, and, and I think that's what – I know that's what's happened here in the United States. I still, I guess, to this day – I will talk to somebody and they will say, 
Um, you know, I, I mean, this isn't like going out on a limb. Everybody knows who David Newey is. So David mm-hmm. Newey started the sport over here. It doesn't matter if you, it doesn't matter what side you're on. David Newey started the sport over here. Correct. That isn't argued. That isn't, uh, that isn't, that's not confusing. That's not, he, he's the, he's the, the godfather of the, the creator of rugby league in America, if you will, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of, uh, well, of the old, uh, AMNRL and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so he created that. He started. He started to build it. And then at a certain point, some people came along, and they probably felt like they had some good ideas. And maybe it, maybe or maybe not. Did the did the establishment listen to it? Right. And that's probably yep. where it began. No matter no matter who said what and who's right and who's wrong, almost every single one of these equations. Almost all of them start this way. Sometimes somebody just walks right in the door and they're like, I'm taking over. But most of the time, like maybe sometimes a new bully moves in and then they have to fight with the other guy. Yeah. But the most of the time, somebody raises their hand and says, hey, I want to I, I want an opinion on this. And then the establishment not necessarily ignores them on purpose. They just ignore them because they don't they haven't put in the effort yet or they haven't been around long enough or they don't know them well enough to know if they should or not. So, you know, or, or whatever the case may be. And then from there, it usually starts to fracture. Um, that's pretty much I think what a lot of happened in America is some people felt like they had ideas to take the sport forward and some people felt like they weren't being included and it really started to divide. Um, and it really started to go from there since then moving past the, the, the split and everything else. And, 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 and I will say this, I have tried for the last year and a half to, uh, get Dave, uh, on the phone to have a conversation or I'm even willing to dr- to drive to where he is to buy him a cup of coffee and hear him out and not record, just learn more. I want to learn more about my country's history of this game. And yep. it's like when I talk to Gavin Willisie, I want to hear about what happened in the fifties and the sixties. Yeah. You know, I want to know my history of my country when it comes to the sport. Mm. And David Newey has the keys to the kingdom when it comes to the history of the sport. Yeah. And, and I love to sit down with him and have that conversation. So, yeah, yeah I, I want to. Um, and, and right, wrong, and different, you know, I, I just want to know. But that said, of everybody I've talked to, some people are and, – and this doesn't – and. And again, any of them that hear me, they, they get mad, right? Like, I, I love it. They call me, they cuss, they scream. And then I'm like, all right, are you done? Now let's talk. Um, I'm a pretty patient person when it comes to that. Um, they, I'll, I'll have them reach out and be like, the Tomahawks are the only brand that should have been recognized. And everything that happened after that, it's bullshit and I don't accept it. And then the other side will be like, everything that happened with the Tomahawks was, was, was terrible and blah, 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 blah. And this is the only way it is. And I tell them mm. all the same thing. I tell both sides mm-hmm. every single time. That doesn't do anything for us in 2019 and going forward. I don't care if they change the name to the friggin' Sabretooth Tigers. I only mm. care about the game growing in the United States. Mm, if you're not mm, on board mm, with mm. the game growing, I don't actually care if you're involved. That Like positively growing, not like negatively as in it's my way or the highway. Um, a perfect example of that, and then I'll kind of leave it to you to talk about because obviously you've been a part of this. Um, is because I believe both sides right or both sides are wrong. You know, it's it, there's it's you can't slice a piece of bread too thin. There's only one side. But mm. um, but you know, one of the perfect examples of this is I now do stuff with the women's side. I, I can tell you right now, I've brought up ideas that I'm like, we should look into doing this, and I've been shot down. And that doesn't mean that I get mad and create an entire new thing. I just go, all right, well, I 
I do feel to my core that I was right on this, but why do they not think I'm right on this? And I try to figure that out instead of just being like, they're all wrong. Well, maybe they are, but maybe yeah. I'm not, I'm not right. So I need to, mm. you know, you know, I don't know. That's just, it's a very tough thing because you start to add egos, politics and all that into a game, a made up game that we all love. I was involved with the Tomahawks 2011 to 2013. So the only USA rugby league I know of is in the Tomahawk era. Right. I went over for the qualifiers in 2011. And we beat Jamaica and South Africa quite convincingly. I think both games were 42-0 or 44-0 or something like that. I met David then, although Matthew Elliott is a mutual friend of ours. Those two are best mates. Mm -hmm. So, David was always going to be somebody I got on with, right? Because of friendship circles. And basically what happened when I was there was that there were the old rumblings of there's another side. And I remember being at a bar which I've been known to do occasionally. Mm, I, um, I can't blame you on that one. <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly. Allegedly, um, that's right. Being at a bar and being approached by someone who worked for the other side, which is, I assume now, the USARL. And he was a lovely fella. And it didn't make our conversation awkward or anything like that. But I remember him trying to influence me and tell me about how bad the Tomahawks AMNRL setup was. And I literally put my hand up and I said, stop right there. I'm here for these boys and I'm here for I was assistant to Matthew Elliott. I said, I'm here for Matty and the staff. I said, I'm not interested in politics. That's for politicians. And I stopped it right there. Mm -hmm. We did the whole Tomahawk thing. We qualified for the World Cup. Now, I do believe that there were some things we had to change to get funding to get for the World Cup, right? And I think it got big a lot quicker than people thought. I'm not that sure that people expected us to qualify in that World Cup for that World Cup. Yeah. And all of a sudden we were going to England. During that time, there was an awful lot of, um, for want of a better term, uh, campaigning online from a guy called Spinner Howland. And his associates. Um, and I know this name because I used to get told about this name <laughs> because he was saying <laughs> for certain things. Now, this is the reality, Nate. The USA Tomahawks beat Jamaica and beat South Africa very convincingly and then got to a quarter final of the World Cup. The Wiggles sang a song about them, and they were well known in the north of England and in Australia 
don't know what the impact was in America. And after that, most of it, if not all of it, got broken up. Since then, the USA have uh, won through to another World Cup, obviously. Mm-hmm. The results were a lot closer. And that can be for one of two reasons, either America getting worse or the opposition getting better or somewhere in between. But the performance at the last World Cup wasn't very good. <laughs> and yeah. um, this time, for this cycle of the World Cup, USA are going through the repershaw. Is that how you say the word? Repershaw. I have wondered for years how you say yeah, that yeah, word. Yeah, yeah, the They could have come round, up with something second, much easier. The second round of qualifying. Yes. Qualified first time. Now, I'm a performance coach, right? And I look at indicators like that. Now, it comes back to the old argument about heritage players versus. Yes. Domestic. I think the Tomahawks um, Philadelphia World Cup qualifying campaign in 2011 in particular was the perfect mix of heritage players and locals. The World Cup after that Obviously, people came out of the woodwork saying, I'm American, mm. Sam so Mullen, and all this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but ultimately, it was a success story, right? The real tragedy for me is that that wasn't maintained. Now, at the same time, I understand and I respect anybody who wants to have a mostly domestic roster. I don't disagree with that. What I do believe, though, is that there's nothing wrong with winning. <laughs> that no. There is nothing wrong with going hard to win. And you can, you can have a strategy to win and develop your local talent. Because what you've got to do is you've got to create a dream. Now, to create a dream, people need to see it, <laughs> right? You can't just yes. say one day we are going to be good, USA or, or Poland or Argentina. Any country, or yeah, without a doubt. If you can fast track that dream, you know, four years later, people should have been dreaming of going up against Billy Slater, Cooper Cronk and all that. And they weren't dreaming of that because they couldn't even compete with whoever they played, Fiji or whoever it was, like, they were getting whooped. And that isn't as an attractive proposition. And people thrive off success. People want to be part of successful things. You want to see how many people were in our hotel bar after we won a a game in Bristol. Everyone wanted to know us. You wanted to see how many people were following us around and Buying USA scarves and this, that, and the other. People want to be part of success, and there's nothing wrong with going hard for success. And I think the big mistake from all that America malarkey 
was that I think the truth was probably somewhere in between. Now, between the whole domestic sort of push and the whole um, heavy push. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Because, I mean, I'm not American, so uh, you need to take this with a little bit of uh, uh, humility. You know, I sort of... um, I respect that I'm not American and and therefore I can't really sit here and say what it means to play for America and all this and all that kind of thing. But I keep coming back to this and I've said this loads. When I was in a circle, I, as part of my coaching strategy to get the Poland players wanting to die for each other, I sat them in a circle one afternoon and asked them to all say, in as much depth as possible, what it meant to play for Poland to them. A big chunk of them had Aussie accents, but there was also Polish people in there. And I can promise you that that Polish contingent didn't feel any more or any less Polish than those with the Australian accents who were speaking in that circle. Because the passion that they showed and the um, the life stories that their grandparents had been through, or their parents, meant they wanted to go the extra mile. And yes, of course, you need to develop domestic players and this, that, and the other. But I'm telling you this now: if you were to put twenty domestic players in a Poland jersey and play against the Philippines, you'd be lucky if three of them didn't get carried off on stretchers like it's not necessarily a safe sport it's not snooker you know like it's yeah. actually quite a tough sport and that's the tragedy i see with american nate that the truth is somewhere in between and i dare say from what you told me in one of my last chats with you they sort of come into that realization i think aren't they i think they are and i think this is i'll say this this is uh... This is going to sound very arrogant, and I don't want it to sound very arrogant. I hope anybody listening, this has got nothing to do with rugby league, nothing to do with America, because I do want to talk about the American stuff. But if you notice, I'm just listening to, <laughs> listening to a human being actually speak out what they believe, and then you respond. And I'm not saying that in an arrogant way. I'm saying that in the everybody's fighting and arguing, and it comes back to the beginning with the mm. WRL. You know, it's yeah. like everybody feels like they've got a scream to get their point across. Let somebody talk, and you'll actually hear some things, yeah. and then you can come back. So I say that because – so from in – so this anybody that's listened to my podcast has heard I'm a big believer in the heritage and domestic players, both. Yeah. I believe there should be I do believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you want the game to grow, you have to cap the number of heritage players you allow in the sense of being able to grow. From a domestic standpoint, from a domestic standpoint, that so so I will say this with the breakup, I don't think all of it was tomahawk. It, it was not heritage d- domestic. I'd honestly say that it wasn't that really wasn't that at all when it came to that. Uh, it was a little bit, but it wasn't that completely. Most of that was arm wrestling inside the domestic league to figure out who could try to make money and who could try to get, take the game forward and who could try yeah. to get more game time and who could try. So there was some things, and I think most of it happened on the domestic side that led to the from. Well, I, I know that from talking to people, from talking to quite a few people, from players, coaches, owners, um, fans, everything that have been involved and have, have been over here. That's where the majority of it came from the domestic side. 
people see the USA Hawks because that's the easier brand and the USA Tomahawks because that's the easier brand for them to see and identify from afar. Yeah, so that's yeah, where yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a lot of that comes from. Uh, and, and so, I, but I, but that, that said, so from a, from a fan of the game, 2013 was an absolute success from a, so from a, person looking on the outside looking in if you're or, well, i guess i'd say looking on the inside looking out or whatever if you're looking at it from an american perspective not involved in the game so not not me not not a fan but just like the traditional and random american the reason why nobody heard about 2013 and the reason why nobody would have carried it on or anything else is because the accents weren't american yeah that all of those individuals that played in that in that 2013 team, then they left and went back to whatever country they lived in or yeah. played in, and none of them came, none of them came back and settled into their houses here in America that played on that field pretty much. Um, and there was that, one or two. There was one. Or two, yeah, you know, right. There's one or two. That's what I said. Four, yeah. Exactly. That's what I said. So pretty much, um, those individuals settled back in. But that was about it. So from an American pride standpoint, and, and that is something that is, you know, again, some people love us and some people hate us. And I'm very I've, – I've served in the military. I can assure you that I have seen both sides of that coin up close and very personal. Yeah. Um, but I can, I can tell you this. Our nature, our natural – how our country was established and built, it was – yeah, no, we came over here, we decided to set this up, and then our home country uh, pretty much treated us like we were outcasts, and they decided, hey, yeah, you're, you're going to, you know, we're going to tax you on this because you're not one of us. And, and all the people that were here felt British, and this is kind of a quick little historical thing, but from our perspective, we, are, we wanted to be part of, you know, we wanted to be part of England, we wanted to be part of Britain, and then they started treating us like we weren't. And then what happened is that mental shift where we were like, okay, so if you're going to treat us like we're not, we're going to act like we're not. And when that happened and when the revolution happened, when all that happened, and then when we discovered all of America and when we started car, when we built cars and we created them and we built railroads and we did all these things and started creating it. The one thing we all every single time had in common was that's an American ingenuity, American pride, American yeah. made. Now we give it yeah. to the world and we took it to the world. But it was done inside America the American way, and that's and what so, Donald Trump's selling, isn't it? Basically, so for anyone, it who, is, which is a whole nother. <laughs> that's for not, anybody who, yeah. who criticizes DJ for that, uh, DJT, um, he's actually tapping into what you've just said. Like, yeah, exactly. He's 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 marketing it now. I will uh, uh, the politi- political conversation completely aside. He's not building America from the ground up. He is yeah. he is marketing. He is trying to market yeah. on that. Now, I'm not saying this as an arrogant way. I'm saying this to kind of lay some groundwork for people so that they understand when I say when people in the mainstream media or anything else like. There's about 340 million people that, that live here. I would say there's no more than a couple hundred that even know rugby league exists. Mm. And that's the complete honest answer. But there's been no way in. Now, here's where I so, – so here's what I'll say about 2013. I think that was honestly probably the right team to put on the field. I actually believe that 2017 was the right field team to put on the field because we will get beat by a lot with a lot of domestic players. Mm. But the difference, the difference though is getting beat 
sucks, but at least when they all come back over here, their family and their friends will be like, hey, you know what? We're proud of you still. And they'll tell their their neighbors about their son playing in a World Cup, and they'll tell this person about that, and then this person will mm. tell that person. Mm-hmm. And, and they learn. Nobody learned anything from the roster from 2013. That said, if anybody saw that, they be, maybe have become a fan of the game from that. So they both offer something wonderful. Going forward, though, the United States, like the United States, will never accept a team full of heritage players because they're not American because they don't mm, live in America. Mm, now, mm, I don't mm, agree mm. with that. It's really important to understand. Uh, I, like I stayed at Christian Freed's house when I was over in Australia, and he's one of our heritage players. And me and him had some great conversations. And I personally think he has the right to be to call himself an American just as much as I do because he has American heritage. I'm just a believer in that. I'm a. Oh, I am. I'm viciously for the old school tradition of this is America, you know, give us your, you know, give us your poor, your weaker, you know, all of that, like give it to, you know, we're American. Let's, let's grow. Let's, let's be a a thriving country. So I I am a believer in that. Um, But I do think when people look at it, so this is the one thing I will say that I've heard. I've heard this from both sides. Now this is people don't hear me get negative because I'm actually a very positive person, but this is me being calm but actually incredibly like viciously angry inside and so i'm saying this out loud but for anybody that's actually said it know that i think that you're you were terribly off the mark when you said it Uh, and they know that i've told them that but i have spoke to many people on both sides of the coin and i have heard from many people like through other people but i typically don't pay attention to that because i didn't hear myself but i've heard from both from people on both sides of the argument they all come back to the same thing. Well, the only problem with growing the game in America is they don't want to do it our way. Well, absolutely we don't. And, and so the people that I've heard, I've heard quite a few now that said, well, if, if, you know, the hardest, the biggest problem with growing the game in America is that you have to involve the Americans. Yeah. That is the thing that I've heard. What that tells the way I take that is they just want a side project to go have fun with the boys. Now, I'm not talking about the players. I'm not talking about even necessarily the coaches. I'm talking about, just, but I'm talking about and broad. But I've talked to people at both sides that are Hawks and Tomahawks and that both believe that same way. Those individuals do not need to be involved in the game of rugby league as far as how they're associated with the United States, whether they are old, new, future, Mm. doesn't matter, player, coach, staff, fan, whatever the case may be. We, I, if I, if I brought football, I don't even know what to tell you. If I brought there's the sports are everywhere, but if we brought baseball to Australia, and I know it's down there, but if, if I walked in and I was in charge and somebody goes, you're in charge of baseball because you're in America. And then we try and put an, an Australian slant on it. Exactly. Okay. It tried to put an Australian. If I tried to go down there and do that the American way, I feel like I'm actually, I feel like, no, let me rephrase that. I know I can speak to this because I've spent the last 18 and a half years of my life in the military and not just like what people think where it's like, Oh, here's a gun and go do whatever. No, I've spent a lot of time in leadership and policy meetings and traveling around the world and meeting with foreign governments and stuff like that. The one thing that I know now keep the political stuff out of it, but the actual like on the ground kind of thing, if you walk into somebody else and you try to instill your values and ideals 
and you try to do it based on a timeline or you try to do it and you think that your way is the proper way. It, mm. it isn't. It's not their culture. It's not their ideals. It's not their whatever. It's not going. It's just never, ever, ever, ever going to work. Mm-hmm. You have to go in and you have to figure out what it is that makes the, them their way. What makes them American? Well, I'm going to give you whatever. a military analogy. You can invade, but you can't occupy. There's a, there's a, yeah, exactly. Like that, that like that is the honest answer. Like in, invading is actually incredibly easy. Yeah. <laughs> in, invading is very easy. Leaving yeah. is very easy. It's all the shit in between that is not. So, and that is that is important. If all the Australians picked up and left right now from the game of rugby league here in America, and they just picked up and left, and they went away completely, we would not be a great team on the field in that sense. But yeah. the game would the game would be here, and it would morph yeah. into what we want it to be. Good, bad, or you know what I'm saying. It doesn't matter on field, off field, whatever. I don't believe that's the answer because I believe we have heritage players that should have the right to play and everything else. I do believe though, if you want it to grow, you have to focus more on domestic players being involved because if you tell Americans you're good enough to play in the local league, but you're never going to be good enough to play on the national team because these guys that you've never met that you've never seen ever, they show up and they take 23 roster spots. Mm. They're never going to get anywhere. If you tell them, Hey, we we're trying to be competitive on the field while teach you at the same time and help grow the game in America. We are going to involve 10 heritage players. I'm using that number because I'm I went to public school, so I have to use round numbers. But you know, <laughs> 10, 10 Americans out of 23, they're here because they're going to develop us twice as fast on and off the field when we go through this process. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Now I know that I'm one of 13 guys trying to – or I'm competing yeah. for 13 spots. And, have and now I've got something. Have it planned out. That you is know, the thing so, that I think so would change everything. So what I would have liked to have seen, Nate, I think I said it earlier, was – you know, let's say it was 85, 90, let's say it was 90% heritage players in 2013. Well, I would have liked to have seen 2017 be something like 60, 40, 2021 be something like 40, 60, yeah. 2025 be something like 20, 80. And I say that because that what, what that would have done, it would have given the USA more chance of getting better on-field results. Nate, we've gone on long like we always do. Yeah. Um, it's been a sad one, this one, I think. It's been a bit of a reflective one. Yeah. Um, uh, just very quickly, because um, honestly, I, um, this is going to be the longest podcast in history. Um, ah, yeah, well, you talk uh, to me. That's probably going to uh, happen. <laughs> results, result, results from America, just to let my listeners know. Yeah, so anybody that's listening to this, uh, this Saturday is obviously the grand final. Brooklyn is hosting Jacksonville rematch of last year, 2009, or 2018 grand final. Jacksonville won that one very easily. Um, and then this year it is going to be a really good game. It's going to be at 4 o'clock Eastern. So for those in England, it would be 9 p.m. And for those over in Australia, it would be 6 a.m. Uh, the game will be on the Brooklyn Kings Facebook page. So even if you miss it and you hear this later, you can always go back and rewatch it. Yeah, I think they're, they're going to miss it by the time we release this. Now, the other yeah, thing, no worries. Are you going to watch the English Challenge Cup final? I am. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm glad you said how. So I have zero ability to watch it here at my house or anywhere else because you can't buy it because everything's geo-blocked. That's a whole nother conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that said, I am going into the city and I'm going to watch the game at 10 a.m. It's going to be at the Australian, uh, the name of the uh, oh yeah, the name yeah. Of the bar. So I'm going to yeah. Be uh, what's his name? Matt Astle. Met him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to be I'm going to be there and watch the game. It goes off at 10 a.m. So I'm going to go there, watch the game, and then uh, and then I may have to leave a couple minutes before it's over. I hope I don't have to, but uh, to get over to the field so I can get ready to commentate the uh, the grand final. And are you going to yeah. be drinking coffee or are you going to be allegedly drinking alcohol? Oh, I will 100% be drinking alcohol from ah! from, t- from 10 a.m. to 12. I'm a fan. And then from and that point, I'll just start drinking water. Your commentary is going to be gobbledygook. Thanks, wow. It's been great talking <laughs> to you, even though the, the topic today was quite reflective. Uh, you yeah. take care. Have a great um, I, oh, can I give one? Can I give one thing to say? Actually, real fast. Yeah. Um, and this is going to sound self-serving. I sh- I promise you, it doesn't. I don't mean for it to sound self-serving. The negativity in the game bummed me out. So it's already been passed. But you know, it's for your listeners. But on Saturday, I just released on the podcast just a quick "Why do we love the game?" And I just kind of just said why I think we love the game. It's a quick like four minute uh, okay. thing that'll come out. All so. Right. Just to make everybody smile, hopefully. Yeah, listen to that, or else we'll disown you. All right. That's right. <laughs> Take All care, right. lad. Have a great day today, and enjoy your weekend coming up. You as well. See you, mate. Thank you. See ya. UK correspondent Phil Kaplan. On the line is our UK f- correspondent, the famous, the popular Phil Kaplan. How are you, sir? And what's the what's the weather report? Well, the truth is, I'm neither of those things, which is which is very good. I'm not even famous <laughs> in my own house, so uh, uh, we're we're hoping because it's the Challenge Cup final this weekend that the weather is going to turn into the kind of sunny event that is normally associated with the northerners trip down to Wembley to give it its usual stereotype. So uh, it's been it's been on and off wet, but uh, test match in Leeds this weekend. That's right, cricket, yeah. Which the, uh, the forecast is good for, and yeah. knowing the Headingley pitch, that'll be done in three days, and uh, <laughs> Wembley weekend as well. Well, I'll go back to Wembley weekend in a, in a bit, because when people listen to the podcast, it, it might have already happened, but we'll talk about that in depth a little bit later, but... The first thing I wanted to bring up, Phil, and it's it's sad, it, but it'd be wrong of us not to talk about this. The poor fella, the poor Batley player who died uh, last weekend, Archie. I mean, yes. I mean, what sad news? What yeah, sad I mean, the, the, there is nothing good ever to come out of something like this, and you can't compare tragedies, but. Um, Archie Bruce, twenty-year-old kid, uh, a scrum half or hooker who came through the system at Dewsbury Moor, the community club. Um, they've been absolutely rocked by his death because his parents are uh, extremely uh, big in in the community. There do a lot of work behind the scenes. But his brothers are, as as well have played there and uh, worked really hard to get an opportunity in the semi-professional game. Went with Batley, um, the local club. Uh, to Toulouse last Saturday and made his debut, came off the bench and uh, obviously will be one of the most joyous and proud occasions of his mm. life for both himself and his family. And um, sadly overnight, um, obviously was was taken ill. 
um, I think in the privacy of his own hotel room. So wasn't discovered until the team went to get him for, for breakfast the next morning in Toulouse. And sadly, they realised that he'd, he'd passed away. Now, so, some of the details are beginning to emerge over here as to what may have happened. It, it looks like a case of asphyxiation, unfortunately. And um, Wow. Those full details will come out in in the fullness of time, and obviously it's it's not it's not our place to uh, either speculate or, or even report on that until coroner's reports have been filed and things like that. But yes, I, the, you know, desperate that you you can't imagine how you go from that feeling of intense pride of uh, almost being on the first step ladder of achieving your dream. I think that there's talk that Batley were prepared to to offer him a season next year as well, uh, bring him into the squad. Uh, no, did, Dis- did he play the night before? So did he get on the yeah. field for long? Yes. He, well, I don't think he was on for the, for too long, but he made his debut. So, uh, you know, he would get a heritage number if that kind of thing exists at Batley. And I know yeah. Matt Diskin, his, his coach at the club, absolutely devastated because he's, he's a really big exponent of the, the amateur scene in, in the Dewsbury area where he came through himself. Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, all the teammates desperately affected and... Um, uh, it puts re- results into perspective. I mean, there's been a lot of talk over here, and maybe we'll go into it about the battle to stay in Super League at the moment, the yeah. effect that relegation yeah. has on teams. And a big weekend this weekend because two of the teams involved in that played each other. And at the same time as you're trying to comprehend what that result might mean, you're, you're looking at something you know, which is called perspective, and, and that's what Archie and his family have, have been through. My, and... my, my, my couple of takeaways, I'm obviously tragic news, and I felt for the family and everything else. I think the, the first um, takeaway is that for him to have made his first grade debut the night before, he will have probably never felt as alive. Like that mm. is almost like the height of, it'd be one of the best moments of his life. Yes, and then you know he for it to go from that extreme to no longer being with us is a real it, 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 it accentuates the tragedy for me. Yes, Secondly, it's, de- the it's de- there's absolute desperation in that story. Uh, the other thing that struck me is that rugby league in the UK, in particular, in the last few years, has had its fair share of more than its fair share. Of young fellas passing away before their time. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's more or if we're more sensitive to it, or because there's organisations like Rugby League Cares and the mm. Rugby League Benevolent Fund that um, obviously uh, we're far more aware of it. I, I, mm. I think you're right. Um, I don't think I can find a common link. I mean, obviously, Ronan Costello, who was an academy player with Huddersfield Giants, passed away on the field. Um, now, again, some of his teammates who were playing in the first team at Huddersfield, like Matty English, and were, were were stood next to him that day. You know, we'll never recover from that. They'll, they'll yeah. go on and have fantastic careers themselves, but that but that's something that they'll take with them wherever they go. The memory yeah. of, of of Ronan. I think when you look at Danny Jones, who passed away playing for Keithley at London Scholars, uh, that was a congenital heart defect. Um, and How long ago was that? Now, Phil. 
that must be about five years ago, I think, mm. five or six years. And, mm, and again, that mm. brought into sharp relief the need for defibrillators, for for checks of players for, at the beginning of pre-season, whatever division they're playing in, of you know, have minimal heart checks to try and discover all of that. So I, I think, you know, th- there isn't a common link. We had Adam Watine who passed away um, whilst he was playing for, for Wakefield Trinity. His was, right. was, in, was in a gym. Uh, Terry Newton, who took his own life. So I think I, I can't find a common link between any of this. Other than Sinjan Ellis died, I think, on the training field. For yes, I, I, but I, I can remember, you know, Roy Powell, same thing happened to him. Yeah. Wonderful, Great Britain international and was, um, yeah. you know, tra- training with Rochdale and, uh, you know, again, had a heart condition that nobody knew about. Yeah. Arguably one of the fittest people I had ever met in my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. His record with... The clubs that he played for and the international appearances that he made. Uh, I, in fact, I think he still holds the record for the most games played on a Lions tour because he was virtually um, not not only a great player, but you know he was indestructible. Um, and yeah, yet, yeah, yeah. something like that laid him low. And um, I think you're right that we're more aware of it. I'm not sure that um, the incidence is any greater or there is a there is a direct correlation between these terribly sad incidents. Plus, rugby league's a tight community. That's the other thing. So we're here. Yes. Um, well, already there's, there's been a just-giving page for, for Archie, which has grossly over-exceeded the uh, original target. Dewsbury Moor is amateur club and Batley have produced a half-and-half half shirt. I think Dewsbury Moor are staging a game this week where you can pay tribute to Archie. So I think that's that's exactly where, where you're right, that it's the community coming together and then we all feel that sense of loss that little bit more. Now, when people are listening to this podcast, um, this will have either happened or it'll be before. Um, that community will basically be migrating down south this weekend, won't they, to the Wembley Challenge Cup final? So, our listeners, it might have already happened. But t- tell tell the people in Australia and, and other countries what what Channel ch- Channel Challenge Cup final weekend has been traditionally like and is like now in the UK. It's not. It's not quite the same um, nope. because it moved its calendar slot. And I believe we um, we sort of mentioned that last time I was on, that the mm. August late bank holiday weekend is not ideal and, and the competition yeah. is moving back to uh, July next year and that mm. will help. But it, it used to be a pilgrimage. People, no yeah. matter which club they were a, a part of, be that a community club or a professional club would book their tickets for Wembley around about January in the knowledge that uh, come the end of May, uh, they'd be putting their, their money over the bar of their local pub or working men's club and getting in the Sharabang and travelling to Wembley. And one of the joys of going to, to Wembley in, in the not-too-distant past and without wishing to paint an, an overly romanticised picture of it was the joy of walking down Wembley Way with supporters where scarves and hats and shirts of of all of the clubs that played the game and it became a festival and yes there was a stereotype of northerners go south and uh, there were even things on television um trinity tales which was based around a group of fans on a train telling stories to each other in in the same uh, vein that the original canterbury tales uh, that chaucer <laughs> came up, it was a parody of that but that was what it was it was the north yeah. invades london and it, it there was no segregation it was a great day out 
Um, I, I think we get spoilt these days as well with the amount of live sport that is on television. And we take it for granted that every week here now there's at least two, probably three Super League games shown live. We get to the, the pointy end of the championship season, there'll be more of their games shown live. In the, in the days when Wembley was king, virtually the only game you could guarantee every season that was going to hit a nationwide audience. And even the Queen Mother apparently used to sit in and, and watch it because she loved Eddie Waring's commentary so much was challenged <laughs> for the final day broadcast all around the world and every australian or new zealand player that's that's played in a final whenever they've been interviewed in the lead up have always said we used yeah. to get up in the hours of the morning and listen to the game and see this uh, I- iconic uh, stadium called wembley and and to think that we'll now be playing there well again you know that i, I don't think that magic has left but it's not quite the same, if we're being perfectly honest. I think they're hoping for a crowd of around about 65,000, 70,000. It will be a great game. Um, but, but I think people have got out of the habit of it being a collective rugby league occasion. Uh, and, and we need to get that back a little bit. Part of that is down to we've lost the element of the romantic that there was a chance um, when I was growing up and obviously I'm a a lot older than you that a team like Featherstone could make the final um, which which would focus on their their town like nothing else could and and those days have gone to all intents and purposes it is no surprise that this year it's another all super league final and it's it's the top two teams in the league as as we go into the final three weeks of the season so it's effectively another super league game but played for a trophy and, and at the national Stadium. Now, another feature that I remember when I was a kid, and I'm talking early 90s here, one of the things that sort of attracted me to rugby league rather than being a goalkeeper in, in football, for some reason I've always wanted to use my hands when playing sport. Um, I was either a wicketkeeper in cricket or a goalkeeper in soccer and then um, switched to rugby league. But one of the right. things that started to attract me were things like my school team played their cup final at the Willows. Um, yeah. But also, um, ball boys from different areas were called in to go to Wembley. So I just missed out on um, the Salford ball boys being at Wembley the, the year before. So I started in rugby league the year after that happened. And I remember my mates coming back telling me stories that they'd asked the Salford uh, town team uh, boys to be the ball boys at Wembley. Does that kind of thing still happen? Not no, um, not really. But the, what does happen is we've still got the um, under sevens boys game as the curtain raiser. Well, that was so, going to be my next question. And is it a primary school versus a primary school, or is it a town versus a town kind of thing? It, it's uh, it's schools or academies these days rather than oh. towns, uh, which is yeah. a shame. But that that's yeah. how the school game's gone. We we don't have any inter town games anymore, unfortunately. And yeah. and I know it's something that a couple of the professional clubs are looking to bring back, and there is yeah. some resistance. And that's down to I'm told Sport England funding, um, okay, because that. This. That controls a lot of the um, money that comes into the game at that level. And, and they're really into non-competitive. Um, they don't like the idea of elitism. So they don't particularly want town teams playing each other where the only the best get to play. Uh, they want a more egalitarian offering. I'm, I'm not sure that works, if I'm being perfectly honest. Is that and, at that age group, you mean? Yeah, I, I think just... A, maybe a bit older. Under 12s, 13s, 14s. Before, before you go into the professional scholarship system, 
Um, and I can is that, something that, is that a model that they transfer to another sport, such as a soccer as well, or is it yes. a bespoke yeah. model for, for, for rugby league? Okay. No, it's every sport to increase participation and acknowledge the fact that not everybody is, is going to make a career out of sport. And as, as a governing body that, that distributes public money, they need to uh, share it amongst everyone rather than just those that happen to be very good. And I think what we've lost is the ability of seeing pictures of people like Kevin Sinfield as an 11-year-old player playing for Oldham schools at Wembley and, and tracing his development from that day as wanting to be the professional rugby league player that he became. And there's a whole host of other people as school kids represented their town team and, and played at Wembley long before they were professionals. And that's what fired their dream. We've sort of lost that now. So champion schools of which this is a culmination um, tend to be the, you know, Castleford Academy get there most years. And uh, we did have a, a very famous case not long ago of uh, a school called Howard of Effingham from Surrey making the final uh, and oh, winning it. We've had a couple of Welsh uh, schools there, one who was a Welsh speaking school, which was which was excellent. But, but I think that there is a, a malaise with the school programme at the moment that we're not hitting as many, as many kids in as many geographical areas as we should be doing. Um, but there will be an under seven, um, sorry, not an under seven, a year seven curtain raiser. Um, and that'll be... Um, uh, unfortunately on too early for there to be enough people in the stadium for the kids mm. to, to really get value out of it but this year we get the uh, the first 1895 cup final as well which is a realization that teams outside of the top flight tend not to get to the challenge cup anymore it's only yeah. open to sides that are in league one and the championship and and two great names who have great Wembley tradition Widnes and Sheffield will be fighting for the first 1895 cup uh, the shame <laughs> Shame is the scheduling that that doesn't kick off till after the Challenge Cup final. And, it, it you know, again, you, you want as many people in the stadium as you can. And there's a, there's a horrible feeling that after St. Helens and Warrington have played each other, none of their fans will will want to, to hang around. They'll either be winners or losers and they won't say, well, let's spend another two hours watching two sides. It's like, it's like having your starter after your main course. Exactly. So I think there's work to be done on the staging and the timing. There's a case to be made even for the for the school's game, for it to be played at half-time. And even though that would restrict it to only maybe 10 minutes, the kids would be playing in front of 80,000 fans. Mm. So the experience for them would be greater than actual the amount of time that they're out there. So the work to be done, I think we need the 1895 as the... Uh, as the curtain raiser, we need the kids to come in at half time and and the whole event to finish with uh, the Challenge Cup being raised by the captain of either St Helens or Warrington in this case. Are you are you going down, Phil? Yes, I'll be going. Um, I mean, rugby league try to make a weekend of it. There's a a ceremony at the cenotaph on Friday morning, which always includes the the chairman and captains of the two competing clubs laying a wreath to remember those who've fallen particularly in the first world war but um anyone in conflict um there's then the captain's run for both teams and the the Wembley interviews uh, there's a Friday night lights game where London scholars always play um a team in their division they hold the fixture back to play that on the Friday night and they're yep. playing Hunslet 
um, and there's normally a beer festival and they tend to get their biggest crowd of the season uh, for that game. Uh, then there's the the whole Wembley event itself and on Sunday there's the London Nines which is the, the largest Nines competition in, in Europe and will attract, um, I think there's the first African team is playing and Red Star from Belgrade will come in, Scottish, Welsh teams, uh, a lot of the, the guys that play um, rugby league in London get the chance to show off their way. So I think the, the sport tries to make as big a weekend as it can of it but um, yeah I'll be going down and very much looking forward to the main game but but also the first 1895 Cup. I, I think um, either Widnes or Sheffield winning that is a real feel-good story for clubs that have hung on in, in really difficult circumstances and, and get a day in the sun, which is, is really what we're all about. Let's go through some other traditions. Will there be a member of the royal family there? For the first time for a very, very long time, yes, there will. Prince hey, Harry is given out. Oh, no, Harry, Harry. Yeah, he's who was new- on a private jet. The patron of the sport, um, take note from his mother. Uh, Royalty used to attend, uh, I think moving it to an August bank holiday weekend didn't help. Um, I think most of the royal family have August off to go to one of their 74 homes that they've got uh, spread through the world. Uh, But he is is there this year. um, Good on him. Apparently taking his patronage extremely seriously and... Going to be high profile once the World Cup comes around in 2021. So, for, for, yes, for the Royal will have a, a member of the Royal Family in it. Still sing Abide With Me? Still sing Abide With Me. It's known as the um, Challenge Cup final anthem. Um, it draws everybody together. There the, the used to be, and, and I don't know if you're, uh, you, you remember it, there used to be something called community singing before the Challenge Cup final yes. at the old Wembley. Yes. Uh, where somebody relatively famous would uh, get up a big step ladder in the middle of the pitch, all the crowd would be handed a song sheet. Um, inevitably, it was a Yorkshire team against a Lancashire team, so you get on Ilkley Moor by tap, followed by She's a Lassie from Lancashire, and the whole ground would sing this whole range of songs. The, the song sheet was sponsored by the Daily Express, if I remember rightly. <laughs> Um, we probably have done the right thing by get by you know pairing that down to abide with me and and I would imagine that there may even be a rendition of Jerusalem and uh, mm. the, the national anthem will be sung and there'll be dignitaries announced to all uh, introduced to all the teams. Will before. the players still walk out in tracksuit tops that they never wear for the rest of the year? <laughs> um, I think more likely that uh, the support staff will wear suits and buttonholes that they wouldn't ever wear for the rest of the year, that they'll have been fitted up for this week, some of which will be Yes, um, and some of which will will look like it'll be the only time in their lives they'll wear a suit. Uh, So it it adds that sense of gravitas to the occasion. The only thing that's really missing since Wembley was rebuilt is that at the old Wembley, which which finished in 1999, it was a really long walk from the from the dressing rooms behind the posts, right. centre yeah. of the field, and that was all part of the build up. Now you you virtually walk out the dressing room and you're there lining up to meet. Uh, that's right, that's right. I've done the tour and it's quite underwhelming to be honest, and because you expect Wembley to be full of sort of history because it's Wembley. Even yes. You, knew, you thought they'd incorporate the history. It was literally like. I felt I was underneath the JJB stadium when they first built <laughs> that, you know. Um, One of the things we have got, though. It's a bit bigger than the JJB. Um, we have got the statue st- out, outside, which, again, was erected, really I think, Boston three or four years then, yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
so rugby league does have a permanent uh, feature, a, a historical feature at, at Wembley Stadium, which Billy which Boston, is Martin a fire. Uh, yeah, Eric Ashton, Gus Ritzman, and Bill Alex Black. Murphy. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 it's controversial. No Yorkshireman. So okay, uh, okay. Th- there was a big campaign when it was unveiled who the five would be that Neil Fox wasn't part of it. So uh, this, um, this for those watching like... at home, BBC and is it Dave Woods? It will be Dave. Yes, um, and who's going to jo- be in the commentary box with him? Jonathan Davis normally gets a gig. John Keir, Brian Noble. But I think in the studio they've been been really good recently with having more contemporary players. So John Wilkin, I would think. Jamie yeah, Jones, possibly. It's worth watching. Is the rest of the game closed down? So no amateurs playing that weekend and no nothing else. No, it's the celebration and the festival of, of Rugby League. So the plan yeah. is that everybody who can get there, um, I was going to say yeah. gets on a train, but sadly East Coast Main Line is closed this weekend. For Oh, Hens- you're kidding. No, fortunately oh, there isn't a Yorkshire team involved. Yeah. Um, so the motorways will be full. Um, yeah. Sadly, Rugby League won't be contributing to the carbon footprint this weekend. Um, but... The great thing, uh, as you'll know as well, is that when you stop at the services on the motorways with the where the coaches pull up and uh, all the fans from different clubs mm-hmm. get to mill around and meet each other, there's never any trouble. And, and that's, that's something right. that we should, uh, we, we should obviously praise the sport for. Um, going So, like we said, there's going to be a break from all normal competition. When it comes back, there's a few clubs scrambling, isn't there, for survival. So let's have a look at, um, first of all, who's looking likely to replace them, whoever goes down, Toulouse well, or... the the favourites are Toronto on the basis yeah. of the fact that uh, obviously they finished the, the regular season so far ahead of everybody else. But we're in a very similar position this time last year when London went to um, Toronto in, the, in the, the final playoff game, the million pound game as it was called then, and, and pulled off a real, a real shock. Um, That's right. I think this year it's a slightly different Toronto. The the playing roster uh, includes people like John Wilkin, who um, I think been there, done it, seen it. There isn't an occasion that he hasn't been part of. I'd, I think the most important thing for, for the Wolfpack is they've got a coach as well who has a, a track record of winning grand finals and coming up with game mm-hmm. plans on the, the final day of the season when it matters the most. And I think Brian McDermott will lead the Wolfpack to the position whereby uh, they should replace anyone who's relegated. There's still a feeling that because of the split between Super League and the RFL, that Super League have to endorse their promotion. And it isn't quite as simple as if you finish top of the league, you automatically get promoted, which is exactly what is enshrined in in all the statutes. But because it is Toronto and because of all that that brings in terms of the logistics of staging their fixtures and, um, you know, do they play in blocks? And that's never happened before in Super League. And can they play at home in the opening three or four months. It's typical rugby league that we wait until something happens and then decide how we're going to react to it. So, um, let's, the plan let's, at this if, stage, they, if they get in, if they get in, let's move heaven and earth to make sure they can play in Super League. For God's uh, we, sake. Do, we, we do it the other way around. If there's a chance of them getting in, we find that another obstacle or barrier oh, that they need to overcome. Oh, you're to... making me angry, Phil. Um, <laughs> well, who are they, who are they likely to replace? Who are they likely to replace, mate? 
Well, until they won in um, in Perpignan on Saturday night last week, London were still the favourites on the basis of the fact that um, they've grossly over-exceeded this year. It's been a fantastic season for them. I think most people who didn't expect them to be promoted and, and they went deliberately with predominantly the squad that were a championship squad that had got mm. them up, thought they'd probably do well to win two or three games. That that game was their ninth that they'd won. Um, and yeah. they are now level with um, Hull KR, uh, Huddersfield, uh, Wakefield won and um, Leeds had won the week before. So we've got probably those five teams because of who London still play. Uh, London's next game and their last home game of the season is against Leeds. And if they were to win that, and there's absolutely no reason why they couldn't, then that pulls Leeds back into it because the original thought was 20 points would probably be sufficient to survive and Leeds and Wakefield have got that. Uh, London's game after... Um, Leeds is Hull KR um, and the Hull KR were defeated by Wakefield and that's put them in a, um, a very precarious position because what everybody had over London until last week was a much superior points difference mm. but Hull losing by 28 points to Wakefield has, has now put them all almost within touching distance of London in, in terms of points difference so if London were to win that game Hull KR would be in trouble um, and the other team are Huddersfield. And, and there's always a side that fall badly out of form at completely the wrong time of the season. And Huddersfield's last two home games have seen them fail to score a point. Uh, they were humiliated 44-0 by Leeds and they were beaten 24-0 by Castleford last week. So I think the worry for Simon Wolford's side is that actually going into the last three games... Um, they have no form. Uh, they've got to play Holloway. Uh, they've got to go to Champions Elect St Helens away. Oh. Uh, and they end up with Catalan at home. And absolutely nobody has any idea at the moment how Catalan are going to turn up week to week. So um, in terms of league position at the moment, London are at the bottom. In terms of who is possibly going to be um, in that position in, in three rounds time, I'd just say as an outside bet, Possibly Huddersfield. Um, I mean, this is relevant to the hard yards because whoever goes down is going to have to do some hard bloody yards next year. Um, cast your mind back to the last uh, however many years of Super League we had. Is it 25 or 20? 23. Um, who, who has fallen out of Super League and really ended up in, in a bad way. I mean, London springs to mind. Like, what what tends to happen when a team falls out of Super League? Because it's different, isn't it, from the the old days where it was all a part-time game. Now we've got full-time professionals in, yeah. in Super League era. Falling out of Super League can be a massive, massive culture shift for that club. Well, I think... I think history suggests? There's two things. One is that every single player's contract is null and voided the minute you get relegated. So mm -hmm. you go from being a full-time club to most likely being a part-time club, unless you've got a very benevolent owner who wants to keep it all together. But mm. the best players inevitably leave because uh, they become assets on a, on a scarce market and get picked yeah. up by other clubs. So um, 
getting relegated these days is massive. That that's one thing. The other thing, of course, is the central distribution. If you're in Super League, Sky Money's as it stands at the moment gives you approximately two million pound um, under the salary cap. If you if you're in the Championship, then you, the best you can hope for probably is three quarters of a million. So unless again, well, unless you've got an owner that's prepared to bridge that gap, you're looking yeah. at releasing a lot of your support staff. And I think professionalism is not necessarily just about paying your players it's having the right number of physios and assistant coaches and development people and all of that goes that's the first thing that's cut i think if you want classic examples of how how difficult it can be to ever recover the obvious one at the moment is bradford um who we saw were the team um of the early 2000s got to five consecutive grand finals um have have never been the same club since they were relegated what year did they get relegated uh, 2012, I think they finally went. So, so it might have been 14. They, they could have hung on for a couple of years, but um, were, were I think in in the nicest possible way a basket case at the time. Um, <laughs> so seven years and they're still not back in Super League. No, and now talking about moving out of Bradford because there's a whole issue with Oddsall, which would be a programme in itself, and they've announced that they will be playing at Dewsbury next year. And, and I think the general feeling is there's a bit of brinksmanship there to try and bring Bradford Council to the table. But should that happen, and Bradford for at least two years move out of the city of Bradford, pair down to a stadium that they're sharing with the team in that division, uh, a crowd maximum of 5,000, they may well never recover from that. They've had three administrations and a liquidation since they got relegated. So there is a classic example of a, a big club that can almost go to the wall because of relegation. The two that I would use, though, go right back to the very first year of Super League in, in 1996. And what, yeah. what we forget is what the makeup of Super League looked like there. Uh, and two teams that were in it, one who got relegated the first year, one who got relegated the second year, were Workington and Oldham. Um, they are Never both got back. No, well, not only that, but both now currently in the third tier of the sport in, in League One and, and, and have never even been in with a chance of promotion back to Super League. And those clubs were effectively um, signed a death knell when they left Super League. They, they were never going to be full-time professional clubs again. It was just finding the wherewithal to keep them going. Um, I think Workington hoped that this year was going to be the year that they at least got promoted back into the Championship. But they're, they're struggling to... to even getting a playoff position in League One. Oldham have had a good season um, under Scott Naylor. They will be in the playoffs for, for League One. They possibly will be in the, the Championship next year, but they've already announced that Scott Naylor's leaving at the end of the season. So it'll be a, a straight rebuilding job again for them. And and I think that what we've never come to terms with the sport, um, something that doesn't happen in Australia, so I assume seems like a, an anathema to most of the, the listeners is, um, there is a, enshrined in British sport this idea of promotion and relegation and, and there clearly has been an interest in Super League this year with the battle at the bottom. It's been mm. far more exciting than what's happened at the top because St Helens have just been so much better than everybody else. The trouble is promotion and relegation has never suited the sport of rugby league. We've done it because other sports in this country seem to think that's the way to go for them. It's always been a yo-yo syndrome here. There's always been a group of clubs who have been promoted and then immediately relegated because that's how it's worked. Uh, the, the, the clubs like, for example, Wigan, who have only ever been relegated once in, in their, uh, their life, St. Helens, who never have, Warrington, who never have, Leeds, who never have. 
they're, they're all such strong clubs that there isn't, if you like, this, the same kind of everybody starting at the gate equal. Yeah, yeah. So those who've been, you know, the Rochdales when I was growing up, Blackpool, Fulham in the early days, they were all capable of being too good for the second tier, but never good enough for the first tier. And promotion relegation has always harmed this sport, but we, we persist. There's some clubs that have managed to come back and arguably stronger in some cases too. Salford have always been, if you look at Salford's 30, 40 year history, they're up and down like a yo-yo basically, periodically. Um, they seem to always manage to get themselves back up, don't they, when they when they get relegated and both in the yeah. winter and summer era. I think Hulse AR would be the classic example as well. Yeah. That, uh, they've always Win existed... Um, yeah. In, in the top flight, if they've lost their status, they've been one of the clubs that have been strong enough to come back up again before it's harmed them too much. But again, I look at Salford today, who um, we're, we're just starting to talk over here about who may win the awards this year. And mm. um, There's a real case for Ian Watson being coach of the year. Yeah. As things stand at the moment, Salford are fifth. And if they continue playing the way they have been playing, they will be in the playoffs. They, they could make Old Trafford. I don't think they're going to, but that no, would be... Fantastic story. The problem for Salford is their crowd base hasn't extended beyond the two and a half, three thousand that yeah. regularly go there. And most and of them you, are my but, family. Well, you, but you look at their accounts, and they're not sustainable as a, mm. as a a top class club. And and the job that Watson's done is astonishing because he's made them into a winning team. But as you say, over a long period of time, yeah, what is the prognosis for a club like Salford? And we already know that four or five of their best players are leaving at the end of the year because, again, they can't offer them can't similar money. Jackson Hastings is going to Wigan. He's been, you know, by far their, their best back. Josh Jones, yeah. their best board, is going to Hull. Um, and it's always rebuilding. And, and because it's always rebuilding, for every one good year you have, the next one could be that slippery slope back into the of championship. The, of, the, of the names you listed earlier at the bottom of the Super League ladder, give your prediction if they were to go down, how, how they'll respond. So let's start with Huddersfield. How, how will relegation affect them in your eyes? Potentially disastrous on the basis of the okay. fact that they've been bailed out for uh, most of the Super League era by the largesse of Ken Davey. Um, yes. Now, they are not the only club who have a major benefactor, but as that benefactor and having put so much money in to maintain them as a top flight club, they've been to Wembley twice. They, they won the League Leader Shield in 2013. So you'd seriously have to ask questions of the people that um, are running that club if their recruitment has been good enough, if their junior development. But I think you'd have to say that for somebody like Ken, who uh, I think he's in his mid-70s now, um, wanted to keep the club going in the, the best manner he could because um, his, his wife passed away a year ago and she was a mad passionate fan of the club and I think in her memory he wanted to keep everything going I think if, if they were to slip out of the top flight uh, firstly some of their uh, renowned players, Jermaine McGilvery probably would be the highest profile, would leave. Uh, they yeah. don't need at their age or would want to play in the championship. They could command top dollar still at, at other clubs. Uh, I think Ken himself would say, here is an amount of money that will keep you going in that division for two or three years. That's my legacy. Uh, they share a stadium with Huddersfield Town, which is council-owned. Again, they, they get 5,000 on average for Super League. You can't imagine it'd be anywhere near that if they were in the Championship. I, I think there would even be talk of perhaps moving back and redeveloping their old historic Far Town ground. Um, oh, 
the posts are still up. There's a there's a bit of grass there, but I think you could make maybe a an eight thousand stadium there, which would be fine for the championship. And maybe Ken would say, "Look, there's the money to do that. Uh, we don't need to be at a facility like the John Smiths anymore." Um, and I, I I would say that there would be a real possibility without Ken's long term backing that. Huddersfield would not come back. It would be disastrous. Hull KR, probably slightly different because they were relegated a couple of years ago. Again, in the hands of Neil Hodgill, their owner. Um, he kept them going, as did the businesses of um, East Hull when they last went down. It's whether the appetite is still there to keep doing it. Um, and I think they would they would struggle to come up uh, if they went down again. Uh, London, I think, expected to go back down. So I don't think there'd be too much difference if they were playing in the championship. I think the argument with London has always been, what does the sport want from London? We've got yeah. a World Cup coming up in 2021, of which arguably the biggest game is the semi-final because we're taking it to Arsenal's new stadium. Uh, we've mm. never played a game there. Well, what would be the point of having a huge high-profile game in London and the, the local team being in the Championship? So I don't think we've fully thought through what we want out of London. If they were to go down, um, they would rebuild in the Championship. They'd be competitive in the Championship. And if they came back up, I don't think that would do them any harm. It's just that I think we need a plan for London. We need it to be a centre of excellence. Uh, for the sport and and if that means ring fencing it from relegation and allowing more of its juniors to play with the club then we should do that I'll give you I'll give you a small example very quickly of that um Dan Sargentson is leaving Wigan at the end of this season um and Sargentson was produced by the London development system yeah, and he would have gone back to London in a heartbeat if there was a guarantee that London weren't going to be relegated. And I would say, if we're serious about developing London, he should be allowed to go back to the Broncos and not count on the salary cap. And that is a dispensation. But as a sport, are we serious or, or are we not? Instead, he's going to Salford um, because there's more security of tenure with, with Salford definitely in Super League next year. Phil, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, we're now in the 21st century talking about these issues you have literally articulated the kind of stuff i used to read in open rugby magazine yep, yep. edited by harry edgar in the Absolutely. late 80s early 90s like yeah we need to do something about london i mean when is something going to happen when when, when is the penny gonna drop and when it you know, we can't just keep having this existence where we sort of hope London will come good. I mean, we've been there for a long time now. And yep. um, in some ways, it's almost a metaphor for Rugby League's international development in a way, too. And I always say that when I'm talking on this podcast, that with all due respect to Rugby League, it hasn't done a great job of advancing itself around the world in the first 100 and odd years. So we can't expect that much in the next 100 or we've got to look at a different way of, of going about it. And I suppose, you know, London is exactly the same. I mean, it's had so many different um, identities, Harlequins, um, Crusaders, Fulham. They're all essentially the same thing, aren't they? But you know, when when is when is the game going to learn? Never is the answer because why did we, we go right back? Take this conversation full circle to why did the rugby league authorities decide in 1929 to take the Challenge Cup final to Wembley? 
Uh, it was a very brave and a very bold decision because the game was um, then, as as it predominantly is now, a northern sport. Easy to pigeonhole and stereotype that the bulk of it at the top flight level was played in the north of England. And uh, it was quite an, an innovative approach to bring it down to what was a newly built Wembley Stadium and put it on a national stage. Um, but the whole of the sport going right back to its its beginnings is littered with tra- with taking the game to London with no real plan as to how we wanted to back that up. You know, the yeah. original test matches against the the All Golds, uh, against the the Aussies that came over in in 1909, they all had test matches in London. Um, we never followed up. There were professional teams in the 30s, lasted a couple of years. Uh, never followed it up. The the Fulham yeah. team was formed 35 years ago. Never followed it up. I guarantee that when we go to Wembley on Saturday, nobody will be giving out leaflets to maybe local people only ever go to one rugby league game a year, that there is a team that plays literally five miles down the road at Ealing in the Super League who will be playing Leeds the following Sunday in their biggest game of the season. We never join the dots. We've never so, decided whether London is strategically important for us. So it's it's it only was, two decades. It's only two decades since we had one of Britain's biggest ever millionaires leading them out. At Wembley, in his jeans. We had that that in our grasp, and we've managed to balls it up. Yes. As a game, you know. I mean, I'm changing team, but I always feel like the game mistreated Marwan Kukash a little bit too. Um. I sort of thought you don't you don't bite the hand that feeds you, and and Marwan is a very unique character, outspoken character, but he actually gets things done. I mean, I'm sure he has his moments where you know he, he he's unpopular or whatever, but ultimately Salford's upturn in fortunes are since Marwan got involved, and um, and all the guys running the show now, the great fellas, um, but. Ultimately, Salford were one of those yo-yo sides until Marwan got involved. I think is a is a fair way, a fair way of looking at it. Did, and when you read Marwan's tweets, you can tell he's really negative about the RFL. I think what what was probably more relevant than Marwan at the moment, who is on the outer, um, and and actually had a chance to get into buying Bradford and maybe that would have solved some of the issues that they've, they've got at the moment. I think more more pertinent at this particular moment is David Argyle, who clearly has bankrolled Toronto for the last three yeah. seasons, put yeah. in far more money than he needed to, some of which was his choice. Um, yeah. He bought a championship club when he was in League One. He's bought a Super League club when he was in the championship. But he's done it because he's not a rugby league man. He's seen the potential of the sport in the city that that he is based. But also, um, and we know, we know thousands of them, people who are not indigenous to rugby league, but but watch it and can see the qualities of it. Um, and the thing about people like David Argyle and what he's going through at the moment and, and extra hurdles that he might be expected to pay for should his transatlantic team get into Super League is that if the announcement came tomorrow that he was withdrawing his backing and giving it to Rugby Union or Major League Football, none of us would be surprised. We'd all be no. incredibly upset um, and we'd put it down as the latest in a long list of opportunities missed. But we do not know. Because intrinsically this sport is built around um, 
butchers, bakers and candlestick makers, which is, is not to decry the wealth of people like Ian Lennigan and, um, you know, Adam Pearson and, and Paul Caddick and various other people. Mm. But they would pale into insignificance compared to some of the investors that are out there that could get involved in the sport. And every time That's we've right. seen somebody from the outside who's made a big noise about wanting to make their team bigger and better than the existing teams that are out there, we've always found a way to stymie it. I think Wales is another classic example. Of, had we been prepared to let the players from Wales play for a Welsh-based team, they would have been a real asset to the sport. But traditionally what we've done is we've looked at their best players and stolen them for the Northern-based club. So there's as, never as been Eddie, a processing. Has Eddie, uh, Eddie Hearn's name popped up a little bit around rugby league promotion? Has, that, has he been told to go away as well? Has he been sort of scared off? Or I think he's seen the political landscape in a sport like rugby league, which is people making and maintaining small empires. And he's decided it's not for him. It's not the way he operates. He is the uh, not always benevolent dictator. Um, I think he would want to say in the the way the game looked, uh, not in terms of its on-field product. I think he'd be, he, everybody's pretty happy with that. And the issues that that is going to have as regards tackling in the future is something that, you know, we're, we're going to have to... That's another podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> I don't think you, you can change very much about what's happening on the field. Um, that will develop. Um, but off the field, I think he would say, right, you know, I'd, I don't want 11 clubs in the north of England. I want this, I want that. And if I'm promoting it, I need it to look like this. I need um, the minimum standards for uh, grounds I'd, you know, and, and all of that kind of thing. He's not going to get because v various people have tried it and it's never happened. So wouldn't I think, uh, the game, wouldn't the game get so many more column inches, airtime, so much more airtime on the radio, on the TV, et cetera, et cetera. If Richard Branson owned a club, David Argyle owned a club, Marwan Kukash owned a club, and Eddie Hearn was involved in running the sport, those four people alone would help change the profile of, you know, because it's more about the people that they break bread with in the spare time than anything else. It's who, and the most of whom are broadcasters, and that's yeah. what keeps you going. And I think the. Um... Rugby League over here could go one of two ways. It could be the next Speedway, which everybody remembers fondly and was was heavily on Sky when the days when um, you know they first opened and was a staple diet of Sky on a Monday night in yeah. uh, in winter in Coventry. So a Speedway, to all intents and purposes, may as well not exist, and and that's without yeah. any disrespect to the skill of the the riders that are still out there. But nobody knows what's happening. I've I've not seen a fixture publicised or a result for as long as I can remember. Um, or it'll go the way of, of something like darts, where you give it to entrepreneurs like the ones you've just mentioned, and they say, right, well, we can see that you, you what you've got is what television needs. You've got a decent product. Uh, it yeah. looks good in that square in your living room. Uh, we like the green pitch. We'd like to see some more people perhaps surrounding it and making a bit of an atmosphere. But for 80 minutes, yeah. we've got something that we can we can actually sell. And I think if we've got the right competition played over the the right time scale, then we can build it on a week to week basis. That and and let's be honest, football over here is the the all consuming media god. But you need something in the summer. And if we got rugby league right in terms of the the actual time that we played it and where it was played, it, it could be the antidote to football. The you know and 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 I think that you've got 
a decision to make roundabout now because we're we're all we're, we are at a crossroads no matter no matter what people say um do we go down that road of making it as much showbiz as we can um and changing the identities and names of some of the teams to to give it a broader appeal or do we become speedway well you know phil if if i wasn't doing this through the device i'm on and the um the app that we use to do the podcast and we were having this same discussion and there was a bit crackly on the line. We think we were still in 1970, 1980s. It's like being in a time warp and things are discussing <laughs> sometimes, isn't it? So thanks for your report from the 1970s. Uh, but it's a lot clearer <laughs> now. The only, the only, the only good voice. thing, the only good thing is it goes with my wardrobe and my haircut. <laughs> Listen, I don't know if you're going to be able to maintain your excitement this weekend. The test match in, in Headingley, which, uh, with Australia's batting lineup now gone, with Steve Smith absent, England are bound to win. And then Wembley weekend. Have a great weekend, mate. And thanks again for your contribution to the Hard Yard Rugby League podcast. Always a pleasure. I've him out Monday to have a lie down. Take care, mate. See ya. See ya. Thanks for being with us for the longest podcast episode in the world rugbyleaguecoach.com.au if you want to see us and uh, see what we do I'm going now, take care see you episode 13 which will be the last one in this series but then we're doing something else Um, if you're doing the hard yards in rugby league keep doing what you're doing, you're doing a great job see ya